We're going to spend a little time looking this morning at some of the wonders of redemption and what it means to be forgiven. We've looked at that a while back about the forgiveness. We looked at the heart that needed to be forgiven. We looked at the cost of being forgiven. We've looked at the joy of being forgiven. How many say it's great to be forgiven? How many know it's great to have your past erased? Isn't that great? I mean, it's something to be so grateful for and so thankful for. Uh, God is so good. A little while back, we looked at the story of Ruth. We did the story of Ruth one, one Sunday, and you know we learned about a kinsman redeemer was. In the story of Ruth, we learned that somebody who is closely related to us, was willing to redeem us at his own expense. We did see that. In the story of Ruth, we we got a picture of what mercy is, what true mercy is, and we even saw how God can bring the greatest good even out of the most darkest situations. One of the things I appreciated about the book of Ruth, how God... You think he's not around. But behind the scenes, in the ordinary events, in the lives of ordinary people, God's just pulling the strings to manipulate history, to make his purpose coming to pass. He's a sovereign God. Come on. He is a sovereign God who can bring emptiness to fullness. Our kinsman redeemer. Now there are other pictures of of redemption in scripture. And all these pictures, all they can do is increase our sense of wonder at what God has done for us. There's what's called the redemption coin. To understand that, you have to read Exodus chapter 13. And verses 1 and 2. Exodus 13 is, is, is the story of, of the, the end of the ten plagues. And the children of Israel are about to cross over the Red Sea. And God has brought to an end the redemption from their slavery in Egypt. But he makes this comment... In Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the firstborn to me. Every male firstborn is mine. It belongs to me, whether animal or human. Before they cross the Red Sea, he makes this statement, The firstborn of your sons belong to me. Now let's catch that, that God declares ownership of the firstborn of every family, whether human or beast or animal. Now in the last plague upon Egypt, in the ten plagues, do you remember how God had spared? Do you remember the story? That God, through the Passover, through the blood of the Lamb, 
through the, the blood being applied to the doorpost. Do you remember how God spared all the firstborn of Israel? Is that not correct? And you remember how in Egypt, when they did not observe the Passover, that they lost all the way from the poorest of the slave of the slaves, the Pharaoh himself, all of Egypt, every family in Egypt, animal and human, lost their firstborn in that plague. And God says, the firstborn belongs to me. So you take your oldest son and give him away. Not yours to keep. Boy, that's quite a claim, isn't it? You just take them and all your mothers. Just go for it for a second. Take your firstborn son. Now don't say I'm glad to get rid of him. <laughs> you know, but you just think the firstborn, you got to give him away. How many can do it? Anybody? Can you do it? God says it belongs to me. It's mine. However, God being a gracious God, says, tell you what, for a price, you can redeem him back to yourself. For a price, you can redeem it back to yourself. You have a donkey, and to your donkey is born another donkey. It has to go to the Lord. It belongs to God, not you. It belongs to God. But if you want to redeem it back to yourself, according to Exodus 13, you're allowed to make a substitute. And you could give a lamb in exchange for your donkey back. Now, listen carefully. <laughs> If you don't want to redeem the donkey, because you don't have to redeem anything. If you don't want to redeem the donkey, it doesn't get to live. According to the laws in Exodus 13, you have to break its neck. And there is a powerful lesson in that if we would hear it. And here's the powerful lesson. Death is the destiny of whatever is not redeemed. Did you catch that? Death is the destiny of that which is not redeemed. But we're not talking about your donkey. We're going to talk about your, your son. Belongs to the Lord, does not belong to you. But you can redeem the child. And there is a silver coin of redemption. You won't find that in Exodus 13, but you will find it in Numbers chapter 3 and also in Numbers chapter 18. That you can buy the child back to yourself. Now, you don't have to redeem your child. You don't have to. But if you don't, they're not going to break its neck. But if you don't redeem the child back then that son of yours will be devoted to menial tasks for his entire life. 
he will be cut off from normal life and he will function way beneath his talents, his gifts, and his abilities. He will live his life in absolute frustration and undeveloped potential because he has not been redeemed. In Exodus chapter 13, we've got a, a beautiful picture of what our lives, because here's the truth. Like that donkey, you and I are born for destruction. We deserve to have our necks broken as an unclean thing. Like an unredeemed son, we are destined for menial living without purpose, with no future, no hope, unmet potential, living totally beneath your abilities, your giftings, your talents, your calling, and your potential, and you will end up being a slave of the lowest elements this earth has to offer. You're going to be an addiction to the lowest elements if you're not redeemed. That's what happens to people when they're not redeemed. But I have good news. Come on. I've got some good news for you. Somebody became your redemption. Hallelujah. Now, if not, unredeemed life is destined for death. Aren't you glad that somebody paid the price of your redemption? An unredeemed life means you are subject to the lowest elements of this world. Aren't you glad that somebody has paid your redemption? So instead of being destined for death, I have an appointment with abundance of life. Hallelujah. Folks, we are so blessed, we can't even understand it. Isn't that the truth? We are so blessed, we can't even understand it. And then there's another picture. You will see in the New Testament this word, ransom. For instance, in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And then you have in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul talking about Jesus says, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now when you hear the word ransom, what does that make you think of? In what kind of a situation is somebody asking for a ransom? It leaves you to the thought of being kidnapped. You're in captivity. You've been taken captive, kidnapped, and now it requires that somebody beside yourself, because you can't do it, somebody beside you has to set you free to emancipate, to liberate, to retrieve that which has been taken away. Now, in the world today, unfortunately, we hear many, many cases of kidnapping. 
You have all heard of a group called the Boko Haram, haven't you? Do you know what Boko Haram means? To translate that in English, you know what that means? Anybody know what it means? It means education is forbidden. They don't like their children going to school, especially Western education. Over a year ago, they kidnapped 276 girls out of school in a Christian village in Nigeria, forced them to become Muslims, saying that nine-year-old girls don't need to be in school. They're old enough to be given to prostitution, old enough to be sold as slaves, and they should be married by the age of nine. 276 were taken. Where are they today? Who knows? A year later. That group, Boko Haram, has kidnapped over 500 people and they have executed 13,000 civilians to date. Awful kidnapping situation. You hear on the news all too often this group called ISIS. They are regularly kidnapping people from Christian backgrounds, holding them for ransom, and if those demands are not met, publicly videotaped executing them as lessons as to what happens if their demands are not met. When we lived back in Canada, we had a frequent guest speaker come to us who ministered in Colombia, South America. He was working with a tribe of people called the Kogi, the Kogi Indian tribe living in the Andes Mountains in Colombia, South America. Now, how many know that's a dangerous place to work? That's a dangerous place to work in the midst of drug cartels, wars between Marxist guerrillas, revolutionaries, and against the government. And this family, their last name was Stendhal. They served evangelizing the Indian tribes uh, of the Andes Mountains. Now the father, his name was Chad, was a brilliant man. Still is a very, very brilliant man. Worked for Wycliffe, I believe he did. And he was capable of going into a village where they had no written language. And he was of the caliber of mind and capability that he could go into that village, learn their language by listening to them, create an alphabet to write their language down, and then had the capacity to translate the heart and the thought of the scriptures and create a Bible for them to read. How many know that's a massive task? Very, very gifted individual. And he laid his life down, a man of that caliber, to go and take the gospel to this tribe in Colombia, South America. It was always a privilege for us to have him. But in the difficult situations that were there, the kidnapping of white missionaries was a common occurrence. 
The Stendhal family had their young adult son, I believe he was a late teenager when this happened. I might be wrong, but I think that is correct. That Russell, maybe at the age of 17 or so, was kidnapped by the Marxist guerrillas. The Stendhal family was preparing to lose their son to martyrdom with pride. With pride. Because, oh, you know, said we might lose our son. They might take him because we can't meet the demands. We don't have this kind of money. We can't meet the demands that they're asking for. And they were preparing to lose their son as a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people were praying, oh God, deliver him, deliver him, deliver him. And I remember Chad the Father saying to me, have people forgot that martyrdom is the greatest honor of serving the Lord? What a, what, a, what a position to take. I said, he's going to get the greatest reward of anybody if his life is taken. And he was kidnapped and he was held in the jungles of Colombia for about nine months. They had kept him in undisclosed locations in the jungles. In that nine-month captivity, this boy preached to his captors. And his message was this. I'm not the one in captivity. You are. I'm not the one who needs ransom. You do. Pretty good for a 17-year-old, don't you think? You need. You think I'm taken captive. And he would preach to those Marxist guerrillas and he says, you are the ones in captivity. He did live to tell about the story. And he wrote a book called Rescuing the Captors. An amazing story for sure. In this story, he was released after nine months of captivity. And to this day, he's still serving in Colombia, South America. He has a unique relationship with the revolutionaries all through the country. And the whole country knows him. And he continues to spread the gospel even today in Colombia. But he was held captive. Demand of a ransom. So being held hostage to slavery is the imagery the scripture uses to illustrate the condition that you and I have in our life if we're without Christ. We have been taken captive. Whether you realize it or not, you need to be ransomed. Now, a person who is held hostage, you've been kidnapped, you cannot do anything to free yourself. There's not a thing you can do to set yourself free. The only way you're going to be freed is by some sort of exchange made by somebody else on your behalf. In real life situations, really the exchange, they're looking for money. Or they want a prisoner swap. Or they want government concessions or something. And the truth is, if the demands are not met, the hostages are executed. Remember back in Canada, the 1970s, it was called the FLQ crisis, where they kidnapped. Uh, they wanted to physically, forcefully separate Quebec from the rest of Canada. 
and they kidnapped two politicians and one was found dead in the boot, I would say the trunk, but you would say the boot of a car. And they had this as a warning, if you don't give us our, our demands. The only time in Canada, I think, that martial law was imposed in the history of the nation at that time. But if the demands are not met, they execute hostages. The fact is this, as sinners, we have all been taken hostage. We have been forcibly placed under the dominion of powers, the lowest elements of this world. We have been taken from the presence of God and we are now subject to the commands and the dictates of our captors. When a person is kidnapped, they live in constant jeopardy. They live in constant fear because there's absolutely nothing you can do. They don't make negotiations with you. Nothing you can do. So you are completely and absolutely dependent upon the actions of somebody independent of you if you're ever going to be set free. I've got good news for you. What I just described is a horrible condition. A terrible, horrible condition. But I have good news for you. You don't look excited. (laughs) Got good news for you. Jesus Christ became the ransom. Amen. He became the ransom. He gave His life. He made an exchange to set you free. We became free because He gave Himself to be captured. He gave Himself to be tortured. And He gave Himself to be murdered so that you and I can go free. A ransom has been paid. If that is the case, that he's become the ransom, I have to ask this question, why do some people refuse to be ransomed? Why do some people refuse to be ransomed? One of the tactics of kidnappers is to take their hostages and brainwash them. I don't know if you would remember back in the 1970s. I must be showing how old I am. I don't know. But in the 1970s, there was a very famous case in the United States of a, a teenage girl, 19 years old, by the name of Patty Hearst. don't know if you remember that story or not. Way back in the 1970s, she was kidnapped. She's, I mean, her grandfather was one of the wealthiest men in the United States, a newspaper, uh, what do you call him, this... You know, powerful, powerful man. They kidnapped her, and two weeks later she was out robbing banks with them. They had completely brainwashed her to think like they thought, and to say, This inheritance you have, this world you were brought in, is all a lie. And they told everything that was wrong with the United States and everything that was wrong and brainwashed and began to think that the way they thought. Folks, in this world, Satan and sin 
wants to brainwash people so that when redemption is offered, they couldn't care less. Isn't that the truth? They couldn't care less. Because during that captivity, they're going to try to tell the hostages of the glory of their vision and the futility of the world from which we have rescued you. We took you hostage, that's what they're saying, but we've actually rescued you from the futility of this world. And eventually some hostages are won over to the the way they think. And they actually refuse deliverance and they devote themselves to the cause of the kidnappers. So does Satan and sin. They're deceptive. After we have been taken captive, they try to convince us that God's way is not a good way. That God is restrictive, he's narrow, he's mean. And sin offers immediate fulfillment of what God can never give you pleasure. And begin to feel like that. And then people begin to say, I have no need to be ransomed. I have no need to be ransomed. You've been deceived into thinking everything is okay. But I've got good news. I got good news. I know a Holy Spirit who just won't let you go. Amen. No matter how you've been deceived, I know a Holy Spirit that will seek you and seek you and search for you and bring back things to your memory from decades ago if necessary, but He'll never let you go. Hallelujah. That's good News, especially if you're praying for somebody who seems to have no idea that they need to be ransomed, no concept of it, then I don't need any help. I got good news. The Holy Spirit doesn't let people go. I've got good news. Even for those who don't think they need any ransom, a ransom has still been paid. That is good news. Now, the major motive, motif, behind the image of redemption is a ransom payment that the Bible uses is the story of the Exodus, the book of Exodus. The Exodus story is a display of the measure of God's almighty power. Israel had been in cruel captivity for more than 400 years. They were oppressed as slaves beyond our comprehension to understand what they lived through. But hallelujah, there is a redemption. And in that redemption, God unleashes His power. And He gives the enemy a strong taste of just what they have been dishing out for years. God took all the freedom away from the enemy. He destroyed their supplies. Can you think of the Exodus story? Can you think of those ten plagues? He destroyed their resources. That mighty empire was reduced to a pile of ashes to a complete zero when God ransomed His people. Hallelujah. And the power of sin is strong, and the power of Satan is strong, and the power of addiction is strong. But the one who has ransomed you and has ransomed me is one who has got great power enough to decimate that stuff and to reduce it to zero. He indeed does break every chain. 
Amen? The wonders of redemption. When God ransomed His people, He's got the ability to set us free thoroughly, absolutely, and completely. Don't leave a hoof behind in Egypt. Amen? Powerful redemption story. In the New Testament, there's also an interesting picture of this redemption. There's a little book called Philemon. Anybody read Philemon recently? It's only one chapter long. It's a short little letter. It's a personal letter from Paul the Apostle who's in prison in Rome and he's writing to his friend Philemon who lives in the city of Coloss. Now Philemon was a wealthy man. Philemon had servants, or should I call them slaves? And one of those slaves, Onesimus, or can I call him Oni for short? Oni. I don't know how Oni got to Rome. I don't know if he was there on business, or I don't know if he had ran away. The Bible doesn't really tell us how he ended up. The slave of Philemon named Onesimus, how he ended up in Rome, I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. But while he was there, he came in contact with the Apostle Paul. And the circumstances are not told of how this happened, but obviously he got converted. Obviously his life was changed. But there was a strained relationship between Onesimus and Philemon because the slave and the slave owner were not together. And it's possible that he had stolen from Philemon as well. And Paul the Apostle, he had experienced redemption himself. And you know what? And the spirit of redemption had got into Paul's heart. And he says to Philemon, let me tell you about this redemption. You know, how God canceled all my debts. And he says, Philemon, you know, what's important here is not just that Philemon is forgiven and going to go to heaven when he dies. And that's great and that's important. But you know, the greater thing is, we got to have some reconciliation going on here between you two. And therefore, I'm, receive, I'm sending him back to you. Now, you're getting your servant back, but you're getting more than a servant back. You're getting a brother back. Amen. You're getting a brother back. And if he happens to owe you anything, if he's blown the budget or if he has, has stolen from you, well, let me tell you about the nature of redemption. If Onesimus owes you anything, Philemon verses 18 and 19, I think it is, he says, put it on my account, would you? And then he slyly says to Philemon, and do I have to remind you that you owe me your very life? <laughs> put it. On my account. Has he run up expenses? I'll take care of it. Don't charge him. Put it on my account. Does that make you shout or what? Put it on my account. Have you ever given somebody else your credit card to use? And they go on holiday on your credit card, they enjoy it, but who's going to get the bill? How many are going away on holiday soon? (laughs) Put it on my account. I have got good news for you. 
somebody came along, saw the debt that I could not pay. The due date is coming and I can't handle it. The interest is too high. I don't have the resources and it's accumulating interest on me. But someone come along and said, put it on my account. So, after the fact, when shame comes to collect guilt feelings on you, when guilt robs you of the zest for living, when the past returns to remind you how useless you really are, I want you to hear these words from Jesus. Put it on my account. Hello? (laughs) Put it on my account. I got good news. Jesus paid it all. There's no need to straighten anything out. The debt's taken care of. Hallelujah. Put it on my account. Because Jesus said that because Jesus pays the damages. Isn't that good news? Now listen to this scripture out of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Another wonderful picture of redemption. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, When you were spiritually dead because of your sins, and because you were not free from the power of your sinful self, God made you alive with Christ and forgave all our sins. He canceled the debt, which listed all the rules we failed to follow. He took away that record with its rules and nailed it to the cross. Let me unpack that for you because Paul is actually using illustration from everyday life at the time when he lived. If you were looking for a loan... Went to somebody for a loan. This is how it works. The loan was written up and signed on what's called a papyrus. After it was signed, this document was ripped in half. But let me teach you. It wasn't ripped nice and clean. They didn't take scissors with a straight line. It was ripped in half and left in such a jagged way as possible. Not a straight line, because later they want to match the two parts together, and they can't have any two look the same. And so the document was ripped zigzag, zigzag, zigzag. It was very, very jagged. And you got one half of it, and the bank, wherever you got the money from, had the other half of it. Now, you know what you're supposed to do with your half? This was the day before computers and credit risk checks and all that kind of stuff. You were to take your half of it and you were to nail it to the doorpost of your house. That way everybody could say, see, that you are in debt. So I can't go to you for any money because you yourself are in debt. Everybody would know that you are 
in debt. But then when you paid off your debt, you got to take your jagged part and you go back to your, the, the, the loaner and say, well, look at all those other parts and which one of that matches this jagged edge? They would find your part. Oh, yeah, it all fits together. That's just your part. And then they would write these words, paid in full. And then you would go back and you get to nail the whole thing to do your doorpost of your house. And then everybody could see you pay your debts and you are no longer in debt. You are out of debt. But let's just suppose you can't pay your debt. Due date is coming. The interest is piling up. It's getting harder and harder and harder to pay this debt. The interest accumulates and accumulates and accumulates. You're going further in debt than you are going ahead and you can't pay it. Then you're at the mercy of somebody besides yourself to pay the debt on your behalf. I have good news for you. Hello? I have good news for you. You were in debt way over your head and the interest accumulated itself was beyond your ability to pay this debt. I have good news for you. Somebody took mercy. Somebody took mercy and went in and paid the debt in full on your behalf because he simply had mercy and he's generous. That's good news. That's good news. But the way you advertise that debt has been paid is different. See, if you paid it yourself, you got the two pieces together and you nailed it to the doorpost of your house. But if somebody else paid it on your behalf, <laughs> a little different how this works. He takes your part. See, you've got to submit your debt to him. He takes your part. And he goes back to the bank, wherever you got this money from, and finds your other jagged half to put it together. And he has it. And the word paid in full is on it. But it doesn't go on the doorpost of your house. You know where it goes? It gets nailed in the middle of the public square. So that everybody knows that your debt has been paid, but not by you. You are free because of the generosity of a merciful man. Now, you need to understand what Paul is saying when he makes this statement. Your debt, with the words paid in full on it, is not nailed to the doorpost of your house. It's nailed to the cross. Come on. It's nailed to the cross, not hidden away, but where everybody can see it. There has been announcement made before heaven 
But for all of heaven, this has been written and nailed to the cross where all the angels can see it. My debt has canceled. And the angels therefore see it rejoice. But I like this one. Even all of hell gets to see it. Even all the powers of hell get to see it. Satan, would you take a look? Come on, you want to make me guilty? You want to put shame on me? You want to make me live like I'm still in debt? Satan, would you take a look? It's publicly declared, nailed to the cross. His debt is paid. I'm free from condemnation. I'm free from guilt. I'm free from shame. I'm free from the whole thing because everybody on earth gets to see the debt has been paid. All the powers in hell get to see the debt is paid. All the heaven knows the debt is paid because it was posted in a public place. Now what's interesting when it says he canceled the debt, there's an interesting word there because... What it does not say, because what commonly happened is you would take your pen or whatever they wrote in and you'd X out the debt. Here's the crimes, here's the sins, here's the debt. Everybody knows you took a 100,000 pound loan that you couldn't pay back. You know, and oh dear, it was X'd out. But you can look through the X and you can say, well, you took a 100,000, you know. But that's not what it says. Jesus did not cross out your debt. I got something better for you. Read it in the Greek language. He blotted out the debt. What, what does that mean? That means nobody can even see what you've been forgiven of. It's not just an X through it. It says paid in full and everything on the debt's been blotted out. Come on. Do you understand this? This is good news. Do we understand what it means to be redeemed, to be forgiven? He canceled the debt. He didn't cross it out. He blotted it out. So everybody can see I am fully forgiven and nobody has a clue what I've been forgiven of. Hallelujah. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Not crossed out. But blotted out. Hallelujah. Devil, take a look all you want. You're not going to find anything. You're not going to find anything to accuse me. That's good news. That's good news. You see... In John 19, when Jesus was on the cross, he made a loud cry before he yielded up his spirit. The word is this, tetelestai. Can you say that? Tetelestai. Try it, come on. Tetelestai. It's translated in your Bible. It is finished. How many know that a lot of people die leaving things unfinished in their lives? 
How many musicians have died without finishing that last symphony? How many artists have died without finishing that last piece of work? How many sculptors have died leaving something unfinished? I got good news for you. When it comes to your redemption, he didn't leave it unfinished. Amen. He didn't leave it unfinished. He hangs on the cross and he says, Tetelestai. It's over. It's complete. It is finished. When did people use that word in, in the, the, the world of Paul the Apostle? Well, if an artist was painting a picture or making a sculpture and he finished, he would go, Tetelestai. It's done. The priest, if they were to examine a lamb for blemishes and found no blemishes, he would go, Tetelestai. It's finished. I like this one, a prisoner. A prisoner in jail. After the sentence has been served. The certificate of death that was nailed over the door. Everybody going by could see your crimes. When you served your sentence, that certificate of debt was marked Tetelestai. If you were a servant and you had been given a command to perform some sort of duty, when you were finished, you would go back to your master and you would say, Tetelestai. Jesus came to do His Father's will. Didn't He say in John 4, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me? Did He not say, I must finish the work that my Father has given me? And do you not read, especially in the Gospel of John, where Jesus overcomes sickness? Have you not read where He walked on water? Have you not read when He multiplied the bread? Have you not read how He began to redeem and how He began to save and began to give provision for people's physical needs? He began provision for their bodily needs. Are you, have you not read the great I Am all the way through the Gospel of John? Have you not read even as he stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he that was dead came forth? Have you not read that Jesus died, sighed deeply in his spirit? You know, which means, like if you could read that in the Greek language, it means like he snorted like a horse. He's on his back two feet and the front two hooves are up and he's snorting away. That's what that word side means in John chapter 11. It just means Jesus is so sick and tired of what sin has done to people and how it's ruined people's lives and the devastation of sin and the devastation of death upon people. He's had enough and he cries out, Lazarus come forth and he had done all of those things. There's one more thing to do to complete the deal and that's to give his life as a ransom on the cross. To forever seal our pardon. And then he cries out from the cross, Tetelestai. It's not unfinished. It is finished. Our salvation is complete. Our debt has been paid in full because Jesus has paid a ransom for you and me. Isn't it good to be forgiven? 
Amen? Isn't it good to be forgiven? He's a good God. He's a good God.